The World Changing Women podcast is brought to you by the 2019 World Changing Women's Summit. Join us January 28th through 30th in Santa Cruz, California to nourish yourself, connect with other women in leadership, and elevate business. For more information and to claim your tickets, visit worldchangingwomensummit.com. That's worldchangingwomensummit.com. Hey there, podcast listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at WCWpod. If you haven't yet, we'd be so grateful if you could help us out by subscribing, rating, or leaving a review of this podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. You're listening to the World Changing Women's Podcast, where each week we talk to badass female founders who've built game-changing brands that are making the world a better place. Our obsession is how do we make solar so easy and affordable for people that everyone switches to solar? And the idea being, you know, we're never going to mitigate climate change until we democratize access to clean energy. Steph Spears is simply incredible. When she discovered that 80% of people in the U.S. cannot install rooftop solar for various reasons, she set out on a mission to make solar energy accessible to all. As the co-founder and CEO of Solstice, she is a pioneer in community solar, which provides every American household, regardless of income level, credit score, or any other factor, the opportunity to purchase clean energy. On this episode of World Changing Women, we'll hear how Steph built her company, hear her take on the importance of relationships with your co-founder and your teammates, and why she feels we all need to use our voice for change. I'm your host, Megan French Dunbar, co-founder and CEO of Conscious Company Media. Welcome to World Changing Women. I'm curious about how did the idea for Solstice emerge, um, really talking about kind of the origin and conception of the idea for the business? Yeah, so I have a couple of co-founders. One of them and I, we both went to grad school together and we we're working on this solar microgrid project in India, and we had taken this long flight to get to the city, and then we took a long overnight train ride, and then we took a, a long car ride to get it to a village, and in this village, it was entirely electrified by solar. And we kind of looked at each other and said, okay, if this place in the middle of nowhere, India, can get solar, how come no one we know back home in America can actually get solar power? And when we looked into it, we actually found out it's because you have to be a unicorn in America to get solar power on your rooftop. Most people cannot put solar on their own homes. And it's actually 80% of people can't do that. And it's because they're renters or low income, or there's a tree covering their roof, or their roof faces the wrong way. So just a ton of reasons why people are locked out of the solar market. And so we said, let's start a company that works on this problem. Our obsession is how do we make solar so easy and affordable for people that everyone switches to solar? And the idea being, you know, we're never going to mitigate climate change until we democratize access to clean energy. So how, how do you do that? Like, I mean, it's like one of those things where I'm like, yeah, I understand what the problem is, but how did you even think about this in a way in order for you to be able to democratize access to clean and affordable energy? There are actually a couple of great tailwinds um, supporting us in this process. So the cost of solar has dropped 
over 80% in the last 10 years. So before we couldn't have an honest conversation about how to get solar to more people. And now we can because the cost of solar has dropped so much that it's equal in cost to fossil fuels, even without subsidies in certain parts of the world. And this is a quote from Bloomberg and Lazard and the World Economic Forum as of 2017. So we're living in an era where solar is now cheap enough that everyone can get access to it. And yet uh, no one can. And then the second tailwind that's supporting us is actually this thing called community solar. And it was just invented in the last few years. And community solar means you don't have to worry about putting solar on your own rooftop. You can buy a portion of a neighborhood shared solar farm and switch to solar that way. So the electricity from this centralized shared solar farm, the electricity goes back to the grid and you as the participant see a credit that shows up on your monthly utility bill for the solar that your portion is producing. So you can think of it like a community garden, but for solar. And because this was just invented in the last few years, we're, we can actually talk honestly about how do we make solar more accessible. So Solstice is focused on, on putting community solar in the hands of every American. We're, trying, we're a software company and a customer-facing services company that connects households to local solar gardens in their area and provide all the customer interactions and do all the hard work on the back end with your utility and solar developer so that the households can easily sign up for clean energy and community solar without much of a headache. Um, and, and, and the last thing I'll say is the benefit of community solar is actually there's no upfront cost. You don't put anything on your roof and you're saving 10% off your electricity bill every year. So it's really the most affordable and accessible type of clean energy that's ever been invented. So I, I always ask founders this. So it's, it's one thing to have an idea to go into the market and identify a hole in the market and an issue that you want to tackle. It's an entire other thing to actually start a business. And so I'm curious about that moment when you actually made the decision to go for it and what gave you the confidence to do that? A couple of things. I actually, it's interesting. I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. Never, never, ever. And it's because my dad was a failed entrepreneur and I'd seen what a business failure when you have a family and you have other responsibilities can kind of tear apart a family. But I had this realization that starting a business isn't about starting your own thing and, and doing it for ego-driven purposes. It's, it's more about seeing that there's a gap in the world and wanting to fill it. And so when my co-founder and I started the organization, it was really that we couldn't believe that these solutions didn't exist, that community solar wasn't more well-known, that it wasn't a household name or phrase. And so what we're doing is trying to make that a reality. Um, the moment was really, you know, I have incredible, have incredible team and have had incredible co-founders. And, and it, it was really his conviction that we need to do this right now. And we, if we don't do it right now, this industry will grow so quickly that we will never get a chance to catch up. So it was like, let's do or die. Let's do it now. And, and so that's, it was just the need um, for this to happen. And also, frankly, the urgency of, of climate change. Every year that we don't make clean energy more accessible to 
every American is another year that we're losing to to climate change. So you you have this idea, you guys decide that you're going to go for it. Um, a lot of this driven by this kind of sense of urgency. I'm always curious, what were some of the very first steps that you took? And I'm talking like literal first steps. Did you guys come up with the name of the company? Like what were those early days about when you guys decided to actually go for it? Yeah, a lot of it was getting a name. Uh, we put a bunch of names on the board and some of them, you know, were pretty silly. Um, and I don't think I've ever told anyone this, but how we got the name Solstice was I was actually walking out of a, um, a New York subway and I, in front of me was an Equinox gym and we had spent a couple of days trying to think of a name and suddenly I thought Solstice and I looked it up and Solstice is, you know, both the definition of the shortest day and the longest day in, in, in the year. And I thought that disparity of the longest day and the shortest day, basically the people that can get solar and the people that cannot get solar and the inequity between those two extremes, I thought that was well captured by Solstice. So that was the first step. Um, the other was definitely saying, okay, let's get out of this echo chamber and start talking to people and seeing if this is something they even want. So we did a bunch of customer interviews after that. And, and what did those customer interviews look like? What, what types of questions were you asking them at the time? Yeah, we were trying to figure out, okay, how do we make sure that this is st statistically significant and, and you know, and so, so supported by data and facts. So it's designing the survey and then going around to our friends and then making sure that we're also walking around and asking strangers their opinions um, in the streets about energy. And it's, it's, it's not only asking people, do they want community energy or community solar. It was about asking people about their preferences around energy. What do they feel about energy? How much do they pay? When, in what order do they pay their bills? And so really trying to get an ingrained understanding of how people think of their energy and how that might change in the future. For example, no one walks out of their door I'm in your the morning host, thinking, Megan French oh, I have to buy energy Co-founder and CEO of Conscious Very Company few people Media. do that. Welcome and to World Changing People don't Roman. think of consumer choice around energy. Yet, in the next decade, that will begin to change drastically. You know, people are going to buy more EVs. People are going to buy more smart home appliances and, and energy efficiency services and different kinds of renewable energy. And so we wanted to understand the consumer in order to provide those services. Is there anything that you would have done differently now that you have the wisdom that you have of, of running the company for a bit? Is there anything that you would have done differently in those early days when you set things up? Yeah. So the short answer is I would have done a lot differently, <laughs> but in, some, in terms of what specifically we would have done differently is making sure that we were talking to more solar developers and financiers. So we're two-sided marketplace. We're a B to B to C company. And we bring the solar developers that are building the solar farms together with the consumers and the households that want community shared solar energy. And we were doing a ton of customer interviews on the household side, and we should have been doing more interviews on the financier and solar developer side as well. And then the second thing I would do differently is we made a lot of generalist hires in the beginning of our company. And, you know, a lot of young people who said, you know, I don't know what I'm going to, 
I can do for you guys, but I, I know I'm going to work hard and I know I can help. And we said, great, we're going to take every smart person who wants to help us and we're going to find a place for you. When really, I think we should have found people who were excellent at specialties that we could have groomed for being heads of certain departments. So a head of product, you know, a head of sales, a head of marketing, as opposed to finding more junior level folks who could be pinch hitters in all of these departments. And it was only really when we made those kind of specialist hires did Solstice really begin to take off. And it's because nothing happens because only the founders do it. It's because we have a good team and everyone feels empowered to, to deal with their own department autonomously. So those are the two things I would definitely change again. And I'm curious about getting Solstice off the ground. How did you fund it at the beginning? And then how have you funded it since that time to continue growth? Yeah, there are two pretty catalytic sources of funding that came to us in the beginning. One was just the first, very first way we got to work on Solstice is my co-founder and I were graduating from grad school and I was walking across campus one day and I saw a sign that said, applications due today if you want to be part of the entrepreneur uh, accelerator for the summer after graduation. And we'd been playing around with the idea for Solstice, but we, we had not done anything yet at all. We hadn't even talked to customers at that point. And so I ran home and I filled out the application and lucky enough, we got into the summer accelerator and it gave us the time and space and a little bit of funding to work on it for a whole summer. And that gave us the confidence to say, okay, we can do this. And then it wasn't until, uh, you know, another maybe nine months later where we got our first real institutional funding. And that was through Echoing Green. So Echoing Green is a fellowship. Uh, you do a two-year fellowship with this early stage social enterprise funder. And it's the most incredible network. And, and I would recommend every one who's thinking of doing impact businesses to try to apply for Echoing Green. And we were lucky enough to get it. And we had been rejected over the course of these nine months from a couple dozen funders. And finally, we got Echoing Green. And that opened the door to both being able to do it full time, but also to get connections to other funders. And so after those two dozen rejections, we were a little unsure if we should pursue this. And thanks to Echoing Green, we have been able to kind of grow the business um, in a way that we would never have been able to without them. Can you talk to me a little bit about kind of bouncing back after being rejected for funding? So how do you find funding when you're first starting out? It's so hard. And I have a workshop actually now that I run for other social entrepreneurs to help them raise their first million dollars because fundamentally I think your first million are going to come from first and second degree connections. And that's not because we have particularly rich friends or family members. In fact, they're the opposite of rich in our space. But because I think the power of networks when you ask people for help is simply astonishing. Our, um, where we broke through the funding space is really starting to ask people for to help us. Um, we were initially just applying to a bunch of cold call, you know, grant applications, business plan competitions, and we were just applying to anything that would take a startup. But we had no traction. Uh, we had no, you know, advocates to speak for us. 
And then it was when we turned to our first degree connections, uh, our mentors throughout life or our friends and said, hey, do you guys know of anyone interested in this space? That's when the door started opening. And it seems so basic to say right now, but to really tap into the people you already know is, is the way to get funding. And after all those rejections, after Echoing Green, our first funders for, for C Corporation is actually were actually my classmates from business school. And they weren't big checks. They were really small checks, actually. But it just show, goes to show that the people around you can be your, your biggest champions, even when you don't ask for it and we, even when you don't expect it. But you have to put that energy out there. And so, and and then back to that question, kind of after Echo and Green, after classmates have invested, ha- have you taken on any other investments? We're actually we're actually fundraising right now. The last time we raised was um, we raised a small angel round from about a year ago. We were entering the TechStars Accelerator Program, another incredible uh, network and and group of people that have really helped us and. With Techstars, we got funding from Dorm Room Fund, which is first round capital's student VC arm. And I was a business student at the time. Uh, Princeton Alumni VC Fund, which is run out of Princeton, invested, as well as a couple of angels like Jacqueline Novogratz, who started Acumen Fund, as well as Pipeline Angels, which supports women entrepreneurs. So those were some of our first funders. We raised on a convertible note. Excellent. And I love the shout out to Pipeline Angels. So I'm curious for you, how is the business going right now? And also based on that, based on where you are, what are your predictions for the future of solar? We have been doing the business for almost three years now, and it feels like we're just hitting our stride. It's such an exciting time for us. We were just selected in a competitive RFP by the New York City Housing Authority, alongside with our partners um, like Bright Power and Soul Purpose, we're going to be doing the first community solar installations on public housing in Queens in New York City. And that's pretty exciting. The other exciting prospect is uh, we just won funding to do uh, community solar in California. And we are just signed our first um, multi-million dollar contract, actually, with some developers to expand community solar in multiple states across the country. So it is going as well as it's ever gone. And it's really exciting. And we are doing it in a way that when we first started, it was hard to foresee getting to this point. You know, when you first start, you're thinking about, oh man, I have to print out business cards and I have to fill out incorporation paperwork. And so creating revenue seems very farther, a far field from that. And, and that's not to say that we haven't had a lot of missteps and, along the way and pivots, but the one commonality in this entire time has been that we know and we have talked to customers that think this makes sense, meaning community solar makes sense because not everyone can put solar on their rooftop. And the idea of a shared solar farm makes sense to normal, ordinary Americans. And so having faith in that notion and persisting, even when it seemed like this industry wasn't going to grow, like it looked like three years ago, has come up, brought about this new reality where community solar is doubling each of the last few years. And it's 
moving so quickly that every solar report in the industry that comes out and has come out in this past year is said community solar is no longer hype. It is actually a thing. People need to pay attention to this because it is a big portion of future solar growth in this country. And it's been so encouraging to go from screaming from the, the rooftops and no one listening about community solar to now everyone wanting to talk about it. In terms of your question about the future of solar in this country, you know, people have said this a lot rhetorically, but it is going to be a bigger and bigger share of our electricity mix in this country. And one encouraging thing is that utilities are starting to do more with solar in general and community solar specifically. In fact, they're doing more and more on renewable energy. And the reason why they're doing it is because we are in the midst of effectively a fourth industrial revolution, and that's in energy. The way we've gotten our energy hasn't changed in over a hundred years, and it will change in our lifetime. It will change in the next decade, and we're getting to witness all of that right now. So utilities are going to give consumers more choice in their energy. They're going to use more renewable energy, and we get to be at the front seat to, to watch this all happen. Hallelujah. <laughs> this is very hopeful. Um, exciting to hear. I'm curious for you, because there's, there's kind of this romantic narrative around entrepreneurship in general, around, you know, you have an idea, you identify a hole in the market, you start a company, and three years later, here you're sitting down with multi-million dollar contracts and... That was, that was fast. That was great. Everything was easy. Um, so I'm curious for you, how has the last three years been for you as, uh, as a person? Um, what has the last three years felt like? Yeah, I, I love that it sounds e that it was easy because it was definitely not easy. And, um, you know, I think it's also important for folks who are the audience of this podcast to know that there have been times where we're not, we weren't sure if we can make payroll. And it had less to do with the fact that we weren't making revenue and more to do about balancing working and making sure when we got the checks in the mail was when before when we had to do payroll a couple of times there, things got pretty, pretty thin. And there are a couple projects there too. We, we were sure we got projects um, and then right before they started uh, a solar developer pulled out because their financing didn't come through or something. They call this industry the solar coaster because there's a lot of uncertainty. And when you're inventing the future, which is what the solar industry is doing, there can be a lot of missteps. And so it definitely hasn't been hard. I mean, excuse me, it definitely hasn't been easy, but it's always been exciting and challenging and fulfilling and, um, and then our hope is, you know, incredibly impactful for, for people. In terms of what, is the question, what, what are we struggling with right now? Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about, about both, kind of how has this last three years been? And then if there's anything that you are struggling with right now, what would you say is kind of keeping you up at night? I have been really lucky to work in jobs that had a lot of purpose. I used to work on the Obama campaign and then I worked in, um, in the Obama administration and, and then I worked in deploying renewable energy in India and Pakistan. And so I've always been attracted to jobs that had a mission associated with it. And this, of all those jobs, this has actually been the hardest job 
yet there are the highest highs and the lowest lows. And so how is the how have the last three years felt is incredibly hard, but incredibly fulfilling. And I think the the reason why it's been so fulfilling is largely because of the team that we've been able to assemble. A big lesson of the last three years is that nothing gets done because of one person's effort. Nothing gets done at Solstice because I do it. It gets done because multiple teams or multiple people are working on any one of the accomplishments or projects that we're working on. And it's not just, you know, the sales team getting things done. It's the sales team working with the marketing team, working with operations, working with the software development team. And if we're not in lockstep, then we don't get anything done. And so waking up to a group of people that are so passionate, that are so willing to forego more lucrative careers in the corporate world and try to put solar in the hands of every American, how, how do I not feel like this is the best job in the world, even though some days are more challenging than others? I love that. Um, so I'm, I'm hearing kind of having fulfilling work and surrounding yourself with incredible people. I'm also curious about just for you personally, your personal sustainability, how do you prevent yourself from burning out? And if you have any practices for keeping yourself healthy and happy? I have wonderful. Um, I have wonder. I have a wonderful partner who always is urging me to sleep more than I do, and so that's a great reminder. And in my youth, I slept less than I do now, and I would say that sleeping more is better. But I also did my first triathlon in seven years a couple last month. And that was a really good impetus to start working out more, more consistently um, and taking care of my body. Um, I would say that the most important thing to staying healthy, though, is to make sure that we are having healthy relationships. Meaning, are we, as entrepreneurs, it can sometimes feel like we are taking so much. Right? We're asking so much of other people. We're asking for funding. We're asking for resources. We're asking for connections. And that is not personally my preferred way to interact with the world. And so what I mean by having healthy relationships is making sure that there's carving out time to to feel like I'm being a good friend and partner and family member so that I'm not taking so much all the time, but I'm giving back to them personally on an individual level. I am sitting here nodding and uh, and just like deeply resonating with that. I think I had that experience in December of this year after being at, at Conscious Company Media for you know, almost four years and feeling this sense that I had been taking care of my relationships in my life um, and that I, I was like barely struggling to survive in the business sense and that that extended to my personal life as well. And I just wasn't seeing my family and friends as much as I needed to. And so in the new year, I've just like really made double down on my commitment to be a, more of a giver. Um, and it's actually like changed the way that I've showed up at work. Um, so I don't always feel like I'm like asking for things because I, it's like, it's been more fulfilling for me this year. Um, 
So it re- what you said reminds me of the fact that so many of the self-help books out there are about how do we make ourselves happier? Like how do we meditate more? How do we work out more? How do we sleep more? And those are all really, really important things. But ironically, I think we sometimes forget that the path to happiness and fulfillment is to get outside of ourselves and to think about being in service to a purpose or to other people. And that's when people truly get fulfilled and happy. And as entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs are not incented to do that. Um, and so I think it's it's important to remember that the path to fulfillment is actually not about ourselves or our businesses. Couldn't agree more. Um, so this kind of brings me to, with Solstice, for the last three years, if you were to be able to distill down three lessons that you've you've taken that you would pass along to others? What are the top three lessons that you've learned so far? I'd say top lesson is there is an overemphasis on the founders of businesses, particularly startups. And there's an overemphasis on the founder because they're the face, but really the most important people of any organization are the first 10 people you hire. The first uh, co-founder, the second co-founder, the first staff hire, those are the most important people, and we need to lift them up more often. Uh, The second biggest lesson is that in order to create social change, in order to create social impact, we need to get uncomfortable and get outside of our silos. Too often... We stay in our silos, whether they're the energy industry or social justice advocates or financiers, and we stay in these groups of people that all think like us, and yet the hard thing is talking to people whose views we find intolerable, but that's where the rubber meets the road in social change. No social change has ever happened because we were preached to the choir, and so in specific terms in my work, that means talking less to people who already believe in energy equity, this idea that even low-income and underserved communities need access to clean energy. So, and, And instead of talking to the people who already believe that, to go and talk to people who don't believe that. And that's where we get to really change rooms. The third biggest lesson was clarifying what is my role as a CEO? Meaning, you know, everyone says, yes, your role is to raise money and be the face of the community. Or your role is to manage the staff. Or your role is to create the budget. You know, your role can be so many things when people describe to you what a CEO is. When it comes down to it, for me, it was helpful to clarify the role of the CEO comes down to three types of capital. And one is, yes, you have to raise financial capital to make sure your organization survives. Number two is human capital, meaning you have to get the talent and and empower them to feel like they can take the company um, in far greater places than you can. And the third is, is actually sometimes I think people forget about social capital. It's about building an ecosystem, building a community 
around the causes and the products that you're working for. And the order in which people should, I think, care about these three priorities is one, human capital, two, social capital, and three, financial capital. Financial capital will, will flow if you have the human and social capital in place. And so we're told financial capital is the most important part of our jobs, but I fundamentally disagree. All right. So I'm, I'm going to move on from solstice here and kind of take us into more general questions. Um, I'm curious for you. Um, I know that you had an, an interesting upbringing and I'm curious if you could go back and tell your younger self one thing, what would it be? So I was raised by this incredible, incredible immigrant single mom. And my mom raised three kids on effectively a salary of 14000 a year. And so she would often have to go hungry so he could eat. And witnessing the kinds of sacrifices she made was made the later privileges I had in life very confusing. Meaning I couldn't understand or make sense of why I had the privilege to go to good schools and the privilege to get good jobs when my mom was working in a call center and getting yelled at every day because she had an accent. Um, and, And sometimes people say horrible things to others on the phone. And the only thing that I can make sense of it later in my years, um, as an adult, what I learned and I wish I could tell my younger self was that privilege is okay. You don't have to feel guilty about privilege, but it is a responsibility and you have to do something with that privilege. Privilege makes no sense. And is in some ways so arbitrary because talent is universal and opportunity is not. And so the thing to feel is not guilt about privilege, but the thing to feel is responsibility about how you're going to go out in the world and make the world a more equitable and just place. I wish I came to that realization a little sooner. I'm I'm curious, what does your mom think about what you do now? (laughs) Well, if you know any immigrants, then you know they would prefer their children to be doctors or engineers. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a little bit of an education process. I told my mom that, no, this, this is the American dream. The American dream is choosing to earn no money and follow your passions. (laughs) And, um, I, I, my mom is not, is not that emotional of a person, but she's, uh, she's a, the most, she's the strongest woman I know. And, and I, I'm pretty sure she supports what we're doing and is proud of what we're doing because she would have been the beneficiary of community solar. You know, she was a low income renter and low income renters cannot get solar in this country until community solar. So in a lot of ways, the, the personal reasons why we do this work is, is because equity in all assets, aspects of our livelihoods are important. And my mom reminds us of that every day. Hmm. So I'm curious if someone in your life who you loved came to you and had an idea for a business, what advice would you give them or what questions would you ask them? I think it's interesting that you have just a person that I love as opposed to a person. Um, <laughs> I like that distinction. It's it's a nuance. That's a very intentional nuance. <laughs> I would give different advice. You well, might. I love you, so let me tell you the real reason. <laughs> if someone I knew came to me for advice, 
I would tell them to make sure they found great co-founders and to treat their co-founder as if they were in a marriage. And I think it's easy to, you know, look at our work colleagues and say, oh, this is a work colleague and that's compartmented into work. And it's not, it's different from my personal life, but with startup land, you know, your personal life bleeds into your, your professional life and you're spending more time with your co-founders than even the people you're actually dating. And so, and it's a relationship and it's a serious relationship that requires investment and needs clear communication processes and guidelines, just like a marriage does. And and it requires setting expectations, requires coming up with a founder's agreement and having difficult conversations on the front end about what the future looks like. And if anyone's starting an organization, the, the inclination to pick people around them who just want to help is very tempting, but the more work we do to make sure they're the the right people in the beginning, the better off the organization will be in the future. I'm curious for you, um, what is the most important thing in your life right now? There's an exercise that I just did recently that I think is fascinating. And so on one column, you write all the things that are most important to you. In the second column, you write how you're spending your day to day. And the most important thing to me absolutely in life is my family and my partner and my friends. So those relationships I mentioned earlier that are so important to get back to. And yet how I was spending my day to day was not in service of those people. I was spending most of my day in service of, of community solar and the company. And so it required a recalibration to make sure that the things that we believe to be the most important out of the life in our lives are the things that we spend the most time on. What does that look like practically for you? Does that just mean like getting off earlier and spending more time with these people? Like how has that permeated your life? In practical terms, it means setting a calendar reminder to call home more often. I am originally from Hawaii and I live in Boston now. So there's a six hour time difference and it's hard to find a time to connect with those two extremes. But making sure that we are intentional about that I am intentional about calling my mother and my brother and my sister and my dad, my stepdad, and then making sure that I'm in a long distance relationship and have been for four and a half years because my partner doesn't live in the same city as the, my work, which is solstice. And so I, I want to be more and have taken steps in the last few months to spend more time in the city that my company's not in. All right. So final question. Um, it's we're, we're living in some interesting times right now. Um, and I'm curious for you, what's giving you hope for the future? So I mentioned that solar is increasingly becoming a hot topic of discussion as is community solar. And for the first time a couple of weeks ago, the Aspen Institute has a yearly forum they call the Energy Forum. And for the first time, they had a section called Social Equity. Let's talk about how energy can be more equitable and just, particularly to underserved communities. And uh, we were lucky enough to present our work there. And I was standing in a room of people that I never talked to. 
So people who are generally CEOs of large utilities across the country who traditionally have not been that friendly to renewable energy. And in talking to this room and the days that followed in this conference, people began opening up to the idea of community solar. We're inquiring more. We're saying, okay, let's try to work together on this. And I think what that reminded me of was that and what it gave me hope is harkens back to an Obama quote. So on the campaign, Obama talked about one voice can change a room and a room can change a city block and a city block can change a city and a city can change a state. And if you can change a state, you can change a country. And if you can change a country, you can change the world. And when you trace that all back, it goes back to one voice in one room of people who haven't heard that voice before. And so what's giving me hope is that one voice can change a room. And though these problems seem huge and intractable, they are solvable. Climate change is solvable. We just gotta diversify the voices in the room and remember to speak up in unfriendly rooms. A huge thanks this week go out to Steph Spears for her time, as well as the entire Solstice team for the work they're doing in the world. A huge thanks also goes to our production team at Story Pop Media, as well as the entire team at Conscious Company Media. The World Changing Women's Podcast is brought to you by Conscious Company Media. If you like what you're hearing, we'd be so grateful if you could help us out by subscribing, rating, or leaving a review of this podcast. As a reminder, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at WCWPod. Join us next week for an interview with another world-changing woman. And thank you, as always, for listening. A Story Pop Media Production.